My name is Tom Sullivan. I'm a retired letter carrier for the U.S. Postal Service. I'm 60 years old. My only claim to fame is that I started narrating books in December of 1985, and I am continuing now in my 35th year, and it has become the largest collection of unique Reformed and Puritan titles in the world. I'd shared my testimony in the year 2007 in front of a Reformed Baptist church in Holland, Michigan, but I think there would be some advantages to doing it again in a studio format. And because my case is kind of singular, people have told me they've been helped by it in the past. I have to preface this with a couple of things. Number one, not everybody has a testimony like this. There are, I do believe, those type of testimonies that we call the nurturing family model. As children are raised in a Christian home, sometimes they don't know the day of their awakening. And sometimes they don't know the day of their conversion. And mine is about as far apart from that as you can find. I was raised in a Catholic home in a small town called Glendive, Montana, born in the year 1959. It wasn't until I was a teenager that I even looked into any other kind of Christian profession. I knew of nothing else. And I had a friend or two in high school who exposed me to what are called the four spiritual laws. And I do believe I prayed that sinner's prayer in the back of one of those books, but I certainly do not believe that that had any permanent effect upon me. But as I joined the military in 1977 and I would come across professing Christians who claimed that they were born again, I would tell them that I believed I was born again as well. Now, in modern evangelicalism, the new birth or regeneration is made synonymous with justification. So they would say you pray the sinner's prayer and you're born again, which is really an indication of how far we have fallen from the way conversion, regeneration, saving faith is defined in our major confessions of Westminster, Belgian Confession, the London Baptist Confession of 1689, which I hold to. So I went into the Air Force, and though I had a profession, I fell in with the typical partying people around me and got very involved in a life of self-indulgence, um, a lot of illegal drugs, and so on. And it is amazing as I think back upon it that I never got caught because uh, many of my friends in the Air Force got busted, and continually I was being spared from time to time. Because of a number of bad things that happened to me in the Air Force, I did go visit the chaplain on base. I'll just give you an example. I had married in what was called a contract marriage in those days. I may have looked at it differently, where you had two Air Force people getting married, in this case in Elk, Nevada, where they didn't take any kind of a blood test, and people could stand in line, six couples at a time, and the just of the peace in Elko, Nevada would marry him one after another. So that was disastrous. In fact, we never really even shared the same bedroom. And within 11 months, we had split up three times and finally for good about 11 months later. But at that time, because I was looking for a pity party, I would go here and there and try to get people to alleviate the pain. And I did visit the chaplain on the base, who I owe a great deal to, Chaplain Thomas Westhall. I have tried tried to contact him over the years and have not been successful. I know at one time before he was a chaplain in the Air Force, he worked with the police department in New York City, but I've never been successful to relocate him, though I owe him a great debt. Uh, Ironically, for an Air Force chaplain to be a five-point Calvinist was so rare, and I was so ill-taught in those days. I would come across these terms as I started to study the Bible and listen to sermons and so on, and he ended invited me to this singles group and I came in just not knowing anything and I'd look around at some of the people that had been there for some time thinking that oh they know so much more about Christianity than I know in the Bible well little did I know but I started very early on reading good books and this man put them into my hands or into my mind to buy them for example I wanted to study the book of Romans and I remember going to him and he was teaching he tried at least to teach a introductory class on systematic theology using a book by Henry Thiessen, which isn't a really solid systematic work at all, but because he wanted to teach at a novice level. And yet people 
in this singles group. One lady, in fact, broke down crying because she was afraid it was going to be way over her head. I mean, that's the environment that I started this journey in, and I find it remarkable that God directed me very early on to more solid reading. But the two books that he recommended was David Martin Lloyd-Jones's commentary on Romans, which at the time hadn't even been completely published, his sermons. Um, They only had chapter 3 through chapter 8, but I wrote down Lloyd-Jones's name in the back of the book by Henry Thiessen, and the other one he recommended was John Murray, and it would have been some time after that that I ever came across any books that I had bought by John Murray, but it just shows that he started me very early on on the right track. Though I wasn't reading really good things at first, I was reading some of the charismatic authors like Kenneth Hagin and also such things as Watchmen E, The Spiritual Man, a book written when he was 25 that was some 600 pages, which I thought in the day was, this is such a good book. And, and there were parts of it that were really convicting, but his theological terminology was all wrong in such books as The Release of the Spirit and uh, the tripartite idea of man and that the spirit needs to be released through the soul. It was uh, strange ideas, but these are the things that God was bringing me out of. So very early on, was led into better paths to read better books. And um, I would find Christians that seemed to be a little bit more dedicated in those days. And one of them was from a Plymouth Brethren Church, which is actually 50 miles away in Boise, Idaho, where he attended. But I went there one time with him. And he had already made an impression on another airman that was making a Christian profession in those days. So because I was interested in everything around me and trying to gain light, we were sitting in this home and I was looking through the books in the library and I would pull out certain titles and I would ask about the authors. Could they be trusted or are these authors any good? Well, ironically, if you know anything about the Plymouth Brethren Church, that church is highly or ultra dispensational. And so they had a book by A.W. Pink, and I've taught on Pink his life a couple of times, so I know that the first four out of five books that he ever wrote were highly dispensational, and that's why they ended up in this library. So when I came across the book by A.W. Pink, Arthur Walkington Pink, I said, is this author any good? And most told me he was a reliable author. Well, I was probably looking at his commentary on Genesis, which was one of the first commentaries that ever was expounded in Studies in the Scriptures, which A.W. Pink started in the year 1922. But I kept that name in the back of my mind, and me and a couple of these men were having a Bible study between ourselves at Mountain Home Air Force Base, Idaho, on the idea that we tried to refute that a Christian could lose his salvation. And therefore, I knew some of the verses that I needed to look up. Uh, for example, Hebrews 6, 4-6 to and Hebrews 10, 26. I knew enough by then that I knew these are the ones that Armenians would use to show that a Christian could fall from a state of grace. Well, there was a Christian bookstore in Mountain Home, Idaho, and I became friends with the people that ran that very, very soon. Even though they were Assembly of God attendants, um, if I was interested in a book, they could look it up on a microfiche and they could order it for me. And because I was interested in A.W. Paint now, I asked them, could you bring up a list of his titles of his books? I opened up his commentary from Studies in the Scriptures, which became his commentary on Hebrews, and read for the first time this warning, apostasy, Hebrews 10, verses 25 to 27. Pink wrote, we have now reached one of the most solemn and fear-inspiring passages to be found not only in this epistle, but in all the word of God. May the Holy Spirit fit each of our hearts to approach it in that godly trembling which becomes those who have within their own hearts the seeds of apostasy. Let it be duly considered at the outset that the verses which are now to be before us were addressed not to those who made no profession of being genuine Christians, but instead to them whom the Spirit of Truth owned as holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Hebrew 3 verse 1. A little further down he writes, In the past, dear reader, there have been thousands who were just as confident that they had been genuinely saved and were truly trusted in the merits of the finished work of Christ to take them safely through to heaven as you may be. Nevertheless, they are now in the torments of hell. Their confidence was a carnal one. 
their, quote, faith no better than that which the demons have. Their faith was but a natural one which rested on the bare letter of Scripture. It was not a supernatural one wrought in the heart by God. They were too confident that their faith was a saving one to thoroughly, certainly, frequently tested by the Scriptures to discover whether or not it was bringing forth those fruits which are inseparable from the faith of God's elect. If they read an article like this, they proudly concluded that it belonged to someone else. So cocksure were they that they were born again so many years ago, they refused to heed the command of 2 Corinthians 13.5, Prove your own selves, and now it is too late. They wasted their day of opportunity in the blackness of darkness is their portion forever. Well, needless to say, this was quite alarming to me, and it was the first of many alarms that were brought into my life to show me that I was building my house on the sand. But it would still be another couple of years before I would uh, give up a false hope that I had and would start building again on a proper foundation. But I have to preface this by saying, um, because the conversion experience, if I want to call it that, really ended about three and a half years later than 1983, uh, September 18th, 1986. But because regeneration or the new birth is a secret work of the Holy Spirit within the heart, changing what we call the governing disposition of the soul, the mind, the will, and the affections, it can be done and the person only knows it by its fruits, he's not aware or he may doubt, in fact, that it has been done. So whether September 18th, 1986 is, that's the date that I'm heading toward in this testimony, be the actual date of my regeneration, I can't say for sure, but for sure it is the day when I really got a settled piece of assurance, and I was aware of the spirit of adoption enabling me to cry, Abba, Father. Well, we're still in the year 1981, and I I was still studying, studying a lot, and uh, because this chaplain had recommended the study of systematic theology, I decided to look around bookstores and see what other systematic theologies were out there. And I came across William Shedd's Dogmatic Theology. I think I bought it at the time, but one book for sure I know that I bought was Systematic Theology by Augustine Hopkins Strong, which really was influential in helping me study what's called soteriology or the carrying out of the fruit of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and applying it to his elect. There are so many things in that book which were really helpful to me, and I'll bring that title up again when I talk about what happened in 1983 in the spring. So I left the Air Force in 1981 for various reasons. I was going to stay in, but I did get out. And I went down to Louisiana, which is the home state of my mother. Down there, they say, Louisiana. And I was down in a, a town called Lafayette because my sister was already there. And she was there because my aunt and uncle lived down there. And I thought, well, they're hiring a lot of people in the oil fields. I'll go down there and see if I can find work instead of staying in the Air Force. I won't talk a lot about that. I did find a couple of jobs. The second job, I was doing some kind of construction. And there was a time, so we'll move forward to the spring of 1983, when God was beginning to awaken me again. During those two years, I had listened to so many sermons, mostly John MacArthur, because his sermons were published on cassette at a dollar each. But as I read A.W. Pink and Martin Lloyd-Jones, I kept seeing the name Puritan. And so it was sometime after that I started to buy more Puritan works. But this verse came into my mind, which I didn't know what to think of, and that is Obadiah 3, uh, the pride of thine heart has deceived thee, which I didn't know what to make of at that time, but the fact is I was deceived, and it was by the pride of my heart. Well, I had met some people that I was working with in the construction field, and the one thing that I kept giving into, which proved a downfall to me was that uh, I wouldn't give up the opportunity to smoke marijuana with people who were having a little party. And I remember I was sitting in this trailer with some people that I had been working with, and they were passing a joint around. And as it was making its way around the table, the verse came to me, for one morsel of meat, sold his birthright. Well, you're going to inevitably ask me, is God bringing these verses to your mind? I don't know if it was God or the devil. I don't put a lot of weight upon the idea that the Holy Spirit brings scriptures immediately to your mind. I think he can bring them to your memory. But anyway, um, 
I partook of the joint, though, now with some fear. And I, I was pretty high, and I left that place and started driving home. I was really too high to be driving. But I got to the trailer that I lived, and I went into the room where my bed was, and I started reading the warning passage in Hebrews 12, Esau selling his birthright for a morsel of meat. And the verse just came alive to me. As you read it in its context, it already is very, very frightening about pulling away the shoulder, about refusing to hear that voice from heaven because of his bad for those who rejected the voice that came from earth, that of Moses. How much worse to reject that voice that came from heaven. And I was convinced, and therefore I know what it feels like for people who think they're under a delusion that they've committed the unpardonable sin. And therefore, this is what it felt like to me that no matter what I did for the rest of my life, and I'm only 23, maybe coming on 24 years old, for the rest of my life, no matter what I did, that I was as good as in hell because I had done a sin in which there was no forgiveness. Whatever that is, whatever the sin unto death is, and believe me, in the following years, I've studied anything and everything in any commentary and any sermon on that subject, and I have taught on it. When I taught story of the man in the iron cage when I was teaching on John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. So I left my bedroom and my sister was sitting in the living room and she's not a professing Christian. And I told her, oh my Oh, I'm in trouble. And she knew that I was very, very agitated and scared. And she said, what happened? And I said that I've sinned away the day of God's grace, that I'm under his wrath, which she couldn't perceive, but was upset that I was so upset. And ironically, and I'll just get you through that moment, because I didn't have very many books in my library, but I did start to have the books of uh, David Martin Lloyd-Jones on Romans. And he's talking about, and this is exactly where I opened the book up to and just started reading about the spirit of bondage and fear, Romans 8, verse 15. And he's given a story of what happened to him as a pastor. And he said, this is not the spirit of bondage and fear. Talking about that somebody was rapping at his study door and said, you must talk to my father. He's desperate. Well, Lloyd-Jones discovered that his father had just gotten out of a mental institute where he'd been for the last six weeks because he believed that he had committed the unpardonable sin. And so Lloyd-Jones starts talking to him and listening to a story, and he says, well, that's not the unpardonable sin. And after 45 minutes, he got the man in a calm state of mind and was able to help him. But he said, the devil's not going to give up that easily. You're going to get attacked again. And sure enough, in a week or so, he was back. And Lloyd-Jones said it only took him about half the time to comfort him. And eventually, the guy was recovered. And by my reading that at that exact time, uh, that's what I needed. And I, you know, somewhat superficially tried to share that with my sister and she can't make heads or tails of what I'm talking about. And the problem was the devil didn't give up that easily in my case. And it was eight months of this terror that I had committed the unpardonable sin that led me to, I couldn't work an eight-hour day. I was in too much torment of mind. So I would give them about six hours or less. And then I would go down to the bookstore in Lafayette, Louisiana. And I'd grab anything I could, a commentary on the verses that were troubling me. Uh, the five warning passages in Hebrews or the warnings in Second uh, Peter chapter 2 or in Jude. And one verse that really frightened me in those days that I thought applied to me was First Timothy 5, verse 24, which reads, Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. In other words, I took that to mean that because I'd committed this sin, the guilt of it was preceding me to judgment, whereas some, they have the judgment for their sins after. So I'd read any and every commentary I could on those things because my library wasn't 
very big and it wasn't like I was making enough money that I could buy a bunch of books. And ironically, some of the commentaries did more harm than good. And I remember one of them in particular on the warning passages of Hebrew that did not help me was William R. Newell's commentary on Hebrews. I'd like to see that again, though, because I would probably receive it differently than I did at that time or after I got more light. But to make a long story short, uh, it was eight months of torment and people who were superficial as professing Christians and they were in abundance down in Louisiana, down in the Bible Belt, really got tired of listening to me complaining all the time that I felt I was under the wrath of God. Well, I went down to the Lafayette bookstore one day and the books were arranged alphabetically by author. And I said to myself, well, one thing I don't want to read is anything by a Puritan because anything they write would smash me to pieces. But I'm in the A section and I get to the B section and I come across John Bunyan's Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And I thought, I don't know if I want to read this. This is a Puritan. I thought Bunyan in those days was a Puritan. I didn't really make any differentiation between 17th century Baptists and 17th century Puritans, but I read this in that book. I found it interesting that the same verse that was so haunting John Bunyan was the one that first cast me down. And so he said, when he was in this time of great distress, and Bunyan wrote, Now again should I be as if racked upon the will when I consider that besides the guilt that possessed me, I should be so void of grace, so bewitched. Must, thought I, Must it be no sin but this? Must it be the great transgression? What, thought I, is there but one sin that is unpardonable, but one sin that lays a soul without the reach of God's mercy? And must I be guilty of that? Must it needs be that? Then should I be struck into a very great trembling, insomuch that at some times I could for whole days together fill my very body as well as my mind to shake, totter under the sense of this dreadful judgment of God that should fall on those that have sinned that most fearful and unpardonable sin. Strong has a subject topic called the sin of final obduracy. Now, obduracy would be really hard-hearted, really an impenetrable conscience, a conscience seared with a hot iron. And so he's very helpful in it. He says the sin against the Holy Spirit is not to be regarded simply as an isolated act, but also as the eternal symptom of a heart so radically and finally set against God that no power which God can consistently use will ever save it. Now, when he says consistently use, he's talking about what's called the common influences of the Holy Spirit, not his effectual influences, which can always overcome an obdurate heart, but just the strivings of the Spirit, the convicting of the Spirit, short of converting grace. So this sin, Strong says, therefore can be only the culmination of a long course of self-hardening and self-depraving. He who has committed it must be either profoundly indifferent to his own condition or actively and bitterly hostile to God. So that anxiety or fear on account of one's condition is evidence that it has not been committed. The sin against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven simply because a soul that has committed it has ceased to be receptive of divine influences even when those influences are exerted in the utmost strength, which God has seen fit to employ in his spiritual administration. So, in short, the fear that you have committed it is a proof that you haven't because it would indicate that the Holy Spirit is striving with you, and you would ask, naturally, oh, why didn't this give you continual comfort? And here's the thing, and I've dealt with so many people under these kinds of fears. They can have nine indications or things that they read or people that they talk to that will give them hope that they haven't in fact committed this sin or that they're not hypocrites, but then they'll have one thing that they read or that they hear or that they come across that alarms them and they will, as Archibald Alexander says in his book, Thoughts on Religious Experience, seize those things with an unnatural avidity and refuse to let them go. Well, because I'm talking about Louisiana and the time period, I must mention that um, later on, I came back to Louisiana, to 
Alexandria, Louisiana, closer to where my mom grew up, and I came across a book, Thoughts on Religious Experience, which I would have to say in those days was the most important book for me outside of the Bible to be able to figure out what was going on with me, what awakening is, and what Christian experience is, Thoughts on Religious Experience. But that's a little bit further down the line. Uh, But because after those eight months, I couldn't find work, I'd gotten laid off. And part of it was because Lafayette, Louisiana was hiring people who were working in the oil field to drill oil out in the Gulf of Mexico. But it was about at that time that we began to buy our oil from overseas sources like Saudi Arabia and so on. And so the price of oil plunged because we could get it so much cheaper a barrel. And therefore, a lot of people were getting laid off down there in Lafayette to Houston. And the two cities were so closely aligned that whenever the economy sunk in Lafayette, it also was going down at the same time in Houston because they both had the same kind of industries. So because I was not working and I needed work and I couldn't afford to stay where I was staying, in about April or May of 1983, I packed up my stuff, and I moved back to Helena, Montana, where my mom and dad were living, and I I lived with them, and I was working with them, and they really did not know the extent of the fears and the spirit of bondage and fear, if I could call it that, that I was going through in those days. And yet God was more and more showing me the innate enmity of the heart. I was made in a good degree to feel that by nature we are at enmity against. We have a disinclination to God and the things of God in an unregenerate state. And when I was in the Air Force, before I got out in 1981, I had bought this cassette, because that's what you listened to in those days, of a choir and chorus called Hymns Triumphant, especially Volume 2. And while I was looking for work, I remember one day... I was at home temporarily, and my mom was painting the side of the trailer that we lived in. And I'm looking at the words to Hymns Triumphant, and it was the first time I noticed, and I was really convicted of this, the Holy Spirit brought it home to me, that these words were eternal. In other words, not inspired, but talking about eternal realities. And that I was at enmity against the message that was being communicated in those hymns. And it scared me. But because I couldn't find work, I tried to get back into the Air Force because I knew that at least I'd have job security there. And they weren't taking my career field back in, uh, inventory management specialist. They didn't have any need for right then and there, and I needed work. So I went to the Navy recruiter. I didn't want to go to an Army or Marine recruiter and kind of got laughed off. I don't know what was going on, uh, maybe as a way I presented myself. But uh, so I'm in Helena, Montana, and I'm going through the yellow pages to get ideas of places to work. And I came across the United States Coast Guard. The only recruiter in Montana was in the capital. Here I am in Montana, over a thousand miles from any ocean front, but the Coast Guard recruiter was in Helena, Montana. And I said, well, that's military. And therefore I gave him a call and I showed up. They asked me, well, come on in, told them my story. And they said, well, we can take you back into the military, but because you're going to be a seaman, not an airman, you need to go to boot camp all over again, but only what we call pressure training. And so I went to boot camp in Cape May, New Jersey. And I remember sitting in a classroom deciding where I wanted to get stationed after boot camp. And the map of the United States was broken up into section. Section 13, which was the most desirable for most people, would have been the Pacific Northwest, who wouldn't want to be on a Coast Guard station at Coos Bay, Oregon, or something like that, Florence, Oregon, wherever the Coast Guard stations are. But I said, since it's not likely, I'm going to get that. And I just came out of the Bible Belt. At the last moment, I put Section 8, which was Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama. And I put in for it. And to my surprise, I ended up being stationed in Mobile, Alabama, of all things, on an icebreaker down there. But the icebreaker was working with the National Science Foundation. They would rent the ship and the crew, and they would go all the way south to Antarctica, and it gave training to the Coast Guardsmen. 
but it also allowed me to see a lot of the world I wouldn't otherwise see. So I tried to speed up the story a little bit. I ended up on a ship that went down to Antarctica. And I even remember in those days, because I was still listening to John MacArthur, and I'd write these letters out by hand. And I sent a letter to Grace, to you, Grace Communications, Panoramic City, California, telling them I may be the first person to write to you from the continent of Antarctica. But as I listened to John MacArthur... He would quote authors that I was familiar with but didn't own their works. And one of them was Joseph Elaine's An Alarm to the Unconverted. I knew about these works because they came from a publishing company that was down near McDill Air Force Base in Florida, McDonald Publishing, which no longer exists. But it seems to me that they were associated with the Sovereign Grace Book Publishing Company because they were the same titles and they came in the same green hardback book. So I remember John MacArthur quoting from Elaine's Alarm to the Unconverted about the unsound convert parting with halves by Christ. He wants Christ as a savior or a priest. He doesn't want him as a king. He will have some of his lust destroyed, but he must keep the right hand in the right eye, which is a mistake in the foundation, which really scared me to hear that kind of a quote in those days because I was already under such a great deal of fear. But a thing that I want to say for those who are listening who have that same oversensitive conscience and you're cast down by anything that you are tempted to misapply to yourselves is something that John Owen said in his work on an exposition of Psalm 130, The Forgiveness of Sin. In a paraphrase, he is talking about the importance of not giving in to despondency or despair because if the devil can cast you to that point, then it incapacitates you for any hope that you may have that the gospel would apply to you. And so he's representing David in that paraphrase as saying that he dares not go into despair, even though he's crying from out of the depths. So if I could read John Owen's paraphrase in his commentary on Psalm 130, it says this in verses 1 and 2, a paraphrase where he says, verses 1 and 2, O Lord, through my manifold sins and provocations, I have brought myself into great distresses. Mine iniquities are always before me, and I'm ready to be overwhelmed with them as with a flood of waters. For they have brought me into depths, wherein I am ready to be swallowed up. But yet, although my distress be great and perplexing, I do not, I dare not utterly despond and cast away all hopes of relief or recovery, nor do I seek to any other remedy, way, or means of relief, but I apply myself to you, God, to you alone. Now, that that I wanted to amplify is that I dare not utterly despair or despond, and that's because that kind of fear incapacitates you for present action, and that's exactly what the devil wants to do. If he can cast you into that kind of fear, that feeling that there's just no hope for you, I'm a hypocrite, I've always been a hypocrite, and God is a God of wrath, but what should be the conclusion of that? You're still allowed to come to Christ. The offer is still available to you. Your hope is still in. But a person that's in this kind of fear and agitation and so on believes that that's hope for anybody else. But but I'll return to my testimony. I don't need to dwell long upon my being in the ship, but we got back to Mobile, Alabama in the spring of 1984. And I needed to choose what career field that I was going to go to tech school in, and I wanted to be marketable. The one thing I learned about the Air Force is you have to have some kind of a resume when you get out, and it would help if you learned something in the military that looked good on a resume to those that you were applying to when you get out. And so I actually went into the field of an electronics technician, which God was really working in this um, because the school was actually in Manhattan of New York City, and he was leading certain So my mind was just too racked with fears and terrors and so on. I just, by this time, I was, I was really kind of a mess. So I got orders to Governor's Island, which was at the time the largest Coast Guard base in the United States. It's no longer a Coast Guard base. But while I was waiting for when I was to leave Mobile, Alabama, my grandparents lived about five hours away in the Alexandria, Louisiana area. So I went to visit them. And I did go to the Christian bookstore, as I was wont to do wherever I lived. And I knew by that time, because I'd read Lloyd-Jones enough, that he would mention a book called The Bruise Read by Richard Sibbs, that at a time of depression for him, 
that book really ministered to him. So I walked into this Christian bookstore, 1984, the spring, Alexander, Louisiana, and the lady says, can I help you find anything? And I said, I'm looking for Puritan titles. And she says, well, we have some Puritan titles. She asked me what, in fact, I was looking for. And I said, a book called The Bruise Read by Richard Sibbs, which she hadn't actually heard of. But somebody was overhearing this conversation. He had come down from about 120 miles away from a town called Bolzer City, Louisiana, where there was a Reformed Baptist church. And he was under a good ministry, and he wasn't used to hearing people down in the, quote, Bible Belt asking about the Puritans. So he called me over, asked a little bit about my testimony, and I, to make a long story short, said I was a Calvinist and a Baptist. I hadn't even heard the word Reformed. And he showed me where I could find the book to Bruce Reed in Volume 1 of Richard Sibbs' Collected Works. And then he showed me a couple of other titles, which one of them was Thoughts on Religious Experience by Archibald Alexander, which had been published by the Banner of Truth. So I'm looking through these books. He kind of went his own way. And I came across chapter four in a book by Alexander on melancholy. And I knew enough about the four temperaments. I'd read LaHaye and I knew I was melancholy. And so I knew I needed to buy that book. And it had proved so helpful to me, not right then and there, but gradually to get me so interested in Christian experience and to get me reading the type of things that I do today. And it's a book I've narrated probably twice all the way through in certain parts of it more than once. But there were other things in that uh, bookstore that I was drawn to providentially that were actually more alarming to me. And there was this table, a round table, with a bunch of discounted books thrown on top of it. And I was looking through them and I saw a booklet that was actually published just south of me in Kalamazoo, Michigan by a Sovereign Grace publisher. And it was the book called Will He Always Call Upon God, which was actually a title they gave from Jonathan Edwards' sermon called Hypocrites Deficient in the Duty of Prayer. So here I am in this bookstore. Open up the sermon to the application, and this is what I read. I would exhort those who have entertained in hope of their being true converts, and yet since their supposed conversion have left off the duty of secret prayer and to ordinarily allow themselves in the omission of it to throw away their hope. If you have left off calling upon God, it is time for you to leave off hoping and flattering yourselves with an imagination that you are the children of God. Probably it will be a very difficult thing for you to do this. It is hard for a man to let go and hope a heaven on which he has allowed himself to lay hold and which he has retained for a considerable time. True conversion is a rare thing, but that men are brought off from a false hope of conversion after they are once settled and established in it and have continued in it for some time is much more rare. You retain that hope which by evident experience you find poisons you. Is it reasonable to think that an holy hope and hope that is from heaven would have such an influence? No, surely nothing of such a malignant influence comes from that world of purity and glory. No poison grows in the paradise of God. The same hope which leads men to sin in this world will lead to hell hereafter. If your own experience of the nature and tendency of your hope will not convince you of the falseness of it, what will? Are you resolved to retain your hope, let it prove ever so unsound and hurtful? Will you hold it fast till you go to hell with it? Many men cling to a false hope and embrace it so closely that they never let it go until the flames of hell cause their arm to unclench and let go of their hold. Well, you can imagine what that did to me. Given the state of mind that I was in, I walked out of that bookstore and I stood outside and I says oh no now what am I gonna do because I was so desperate I was so scared in those days so easily uh, made uncomfortable by the things that I'd read as I said a person that's going through this kind of awakening anything that's alarming anything that is terrifying to them they will snatch up hold on to it and no matter what kind of comfort others try to give them they're not listening to it because they can raise a hundred arguments against the arguments that a sound believer is trying to help them to have in order to have hope. I do believe if a person is going through that, the only one that's really going to give them an experimental spirit of adoption, and I say experimental, God can shed abroad his love in your heart. He can cause your feet to stand. He can put a new song in your mouth. And I know my own son needs this. Uh, As sincere as he is, one of the finest Christian men 
anybody would have the joy of raising, he still is over-scrupulous, and he doesn't have that settled assurance that someday I hope that he will have. Well, in my own case, it got so bad that... um, I, I was going through school, and every day you would have a test over what you were studying the day before, and it was too much for me, and I'm reading these things. My assurance is just gone. By that time, I had ended up going to Trinity Baptist Church in Montville, New Jersey, uh, where Pastor Albert Martin was at the time, who now providentially is my neighbor, and I'm his computer tutor, and I've been his computer tutor and neighbor for 11 years, and we're very good friends, but at the time, to listen to his sermons would. Uh, I was at a time when at Trinity Baptist Church, I was wondering if anybody was saved besides Pastor Martin. So narrow were my views and my thoughts that conversion, to use his own words, was necessary, rare, and difficult. My mind was so busy, and I was so worn out with grief that it seemed like the things that were being taught from the classroom were being echoed from the ceiling. My mind was just so tired, and so I went for help. And to make a long story short, help, if you say the wrong thing to the wrong people, means that you go see a psychiatrist. And I ended up in a mental hospital for three different visits, a total of five and a half months, and that science is so inexact, and the medicines in those days really have no better effect than to try to calm down your anxieties and moods and so on. They really are not remedial. They don't fix anything. It's just how they deal with it because they're not used to dealing in spiritual ways with spiritual distresses. So the more I talked about being under the wrath of God, which I should not have said to these people, the more I was labeled as a schizophrenic. And they even got to the point where everything else wasn't working, so they tried shock treatments, which effect in the end was only to give me amnesia, but enough amnesia that I was released from the hospital, but ended up being discharged from the Coast Guard on what's called a temporary retirement disability. But I won't go into a lot of detail then. I knew that the analysis was probably wrong. I knew what was going on, and I ended up back in Montana, uh, living again with my parents, only for a little while, and then I I left there because I'd already been under a Reformed Baptist ministry. At the time, I was thinking about going down to the chapel library and getting involved in that ministry, but I discovered there was a Reformed Baptist church in Missoula, Montana, which since then had disbanded and is now started up again under new leadership, but I went to Missoula, Montana. I visited the church, and they were studying John Owen's work on the mortification of sin, and I said, well, this is certainly where I want to be. These people are pretty serious, and so on, and, you know, by that time, I had so much theological knowledge. I had such a acumen to be able to retain so much in those days, but I never really had a subtle piece, and I never really opened up to the truth of that, but that was in April of 1986, bringing us up now to September 18th, 1986, when I finally got assurance of salvation. And I remember I went to bed early that night, early would be 9.30, and I had just bought a parallel Bible, a King James, New International Version parallel Bible. Why I thought the two would be good to have, I don't know, but it wasn't helping me. So I put it aside and I grabbed the Trinity hymnal, and I started reading hymns under the section called The Forgiveness of Sin, which is when I came across the hymn by Samuel J. Stone called Worry of Earth and Laden with My Sin, and since that comforted me so much, I'm going to read you the words to that here. This isn't the only hymn that comforted me out of the Forgiveness of Sin section, but it's the one I remember so well. Really, it was all of the hymns about that area and that subject that was helping me that night. But this is the one that I really, to this day, remember how much it helped me. And that it goes, weary of earth and laden with my sin. I look at heaven and long to enter in, but there no evil thing may find a home. And yet I hear a voice that bids me come. So vile I am, how dare I hope to stand in the pure glory of that holy land. Before the whiteness of that throne appear, yet there are hands stretched out to draw me near. While I fain would tread the heavenly way, evil is ever with me day by day, yet on my ears the gracious tidings fall. Repent, confess, thou shalt be loosed from all. It is the voice of Jesus that I hear. His are the hands stretched out to draw me near, and his the blood that can for all atone, and set me faultless there before the throne. 
going. Well, I was so afraid in those days of having a false comfort, and so many times I thought that I had gotten a hope, only to wonder if it was a hope built upon the sand. But that night I said, where else can I go? I've been going through this for over three years, and I cast myself afresh, just empty, just nothing more to plead on Jesus Christ, to pillow myself upon him, and I was starting to get comfort. And so I put the hymnal down, and I picked up the Bible, a regular Bible that I had that I loved to read, and started at the Gospel of John and just read all the way through. And I would get to those declarations of who Jesus said he was that really was helping me. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life. And finally, when I got to John 17, and I started reading his high priestly prayer, his prayer for his disciples, that I was really, really being drawn in, and I knew that something above mere nature was taking place there. When I would read the words, I and them, and thou and me, that we may be perfect in one, and I felt faith. I was assured that I was being prayed for in this. Uh, my spirit was being born witness to that I was now a child of God. But you know, I was so afraid of um, having a false hope that uh, six and a half hours later, that's about how long I'd been reading, meditating, and getting hope. The next day I had to get up and I had to go to work, but I said to myself, if I'm in fact born again, there's going to be a spirit of prayer. There's going to be a desire to pray to God as a father. Because it had gotten so bad that just reading certain things in the scripture, my heart would raise at enmity against God. Uh, for example, reading verses like, For this purpose have I raised thee up. And speaking of Pharaoh in Romans 9. And everything made me tremble in those days. But now I had a desire to pray. And I, I knew a joy, a spirit of adoption that now all these years later... And I have I've sinned against so much light. I am such a unworthy recipient of grace. I've done everything to God reason to cast me off because I've been so unfaithful to the light that I have. But at the bottom, one thing that has never left me is that spirit of adoption, that desire to pray, that desire to supplicate, that desire to call upon the name of the Lord. And if people ask me what single sign or what single sermon could you point to is the best evidence that a person has been brought from death unto life, that they have been born again, that the enmity has been slain, Romans 8, 7, and they've gotten a spirit of adoption, Romans 8, 16. It is prayer. And, and therefore, I would point people back to sermon I would point people to, to examine themselves, is hypocrites deficient in the duty of prayer by Edwards. And though people say that sermon frightens me, well, if you really get down to the heart of it and see what he's saying, and you're not frightened by the language, because I believe Edwards did appeal to what are called mercenary motives to frighten people away from hell. Not that those things are virtuous, but because a person by nature is obdurate and senseless and so on, he appealed to the mercenary motives to get them to seek Christ though out of mercenary motives at first God could show them mercy after he showed them the truth of what's in the Westminster and London Confessions chapter 9 and verse 3 that man is not able to prepare himself thereunto by nature he doesn't know that he thinks he can do something that will catch the uh, eye and heart of God and now he's in a position in which God can show him mercy which really to me the purpose of awakening is to show him his utter inability to prepare himself for mercy so that the Savior is finally prized as he sees that my help must come from outside of myself. So I want to keep this testimony at about one hour. And so this is 1986 that I'm leaving off and just kind of where have I gone since then? And ironically, I started narrating nine months before I really had assurance of salvation. But God was working through all of this. I had discovered when I left uh, Trinity Baptist Church, I maintained contact with a brother who still attends there, who sent me the materials from Chapel Library. There's a really good bookstore at Trinity called the Trinity Bookstore. And I would look at works like John Owen and so on. And I always had a f conviction that those books needed to be audio books, that somebody needed to read those on cassette and make them available. And I realized that people were doing that at um, Chapel Library for the deaf. And so 
I decided I'd just grab a blank cassette and I'd grab a couple of titles and narrate them and send them and just volunteer to narrate. And because some of the things that were being narrated weren't being narrated with much conviction, though I'm really, really ashamed of how my early narration sounded, at least I read with conviction, that was in December of 1985, and so I was out of work for a while after I got out of the Coast Guard, and for the next few months I narrated an awful lot. And that's continued to this day, and one of the main reasons I do narrate is because it's for my own good. Uh, in the meantime, I felt like I was being called to the ministry sometime after that, though I've never entered into the ministry and I think a lot of times young men may think that they are called because they just want to preach these things. They have a burden for them, and that's not necessarily a call to the ministry. But it led me to come to Grand Rapids, Michigan, for a number of reasons in those days. But that was December of 88, after I'd gone to school. And it was some time after that before I was even granted a wife, uh, actually, of, actually through a contact I started writing to her, and she was Dominican in February of 1994, and we never got married until 1996. I wrote to her for a year before I ever met her in person, because by becoming a letter carrier for the Postal Service, I was just so busy just trying to keep my job in those days and trying to... I was so thankful to get the job. I hadn't had a good job in a number of years with any benefits, and back then, 14 15 bucks an hour with benefits seemed like a great deal, and providentially, I could never have uh, married if I didn't get a good job first. So God was leading all of this to pass. But I've been in Grand Rapids now since December of 88. And this is the first year that I think we're finally getting an opportunity to, I just retired in March, uh, to be able to get out of here. I've been trying to get out of Michigan for some time. I don't like the winters here. There's a lot of common grace here because it's a Dutch Calvinistic settlement. There were some great bookstores here. Many of them are closing down. And I would like to be part of a small work. And there is one down in Elizabeth town Kentucky so that's my goal is to get down there but that's part of another story I've given you enough of my testimony I will tell you that I have at present a Facebook group to try to help people go through some of the fears and needing experiential assurance like I gained uh, that site is called Thoughts on Christian Experience and Assurance and I'm also a moderator of a reform study of church history by narrating for 35 years, you become pretty familiar with good titles. And the one thing, I'm not a great counselor on this subject. I can counsel up to a point, but because I'm so well-read, I can point you to other things that would be helpful for you. And one of the things I've recommended most, besides Thoughts on Religious Experience by Archibald Alexander, and is... Um, a book called Cases of Conscience by Samuel Pike and Samuel Hayward, published in the year 1755, where these questions were sent by letter to these two pastors, and they were answered in a book called Cases of Conscience, and I hardly know its equal of all of the things that I've read, though I could put together probably a pretty good bibliography from some of the other things that I've read. For example, The Forgiveness of Sin by John Owen, I think, is one of the finest works. I'm just amazed at his analysis, and I think that that came from his being under awakening for five years himself before he got assurance. And what I find is, because what's called Christian casuistry or experimental Christianity as a theological topic is not as popular in our day. This is the first generation where I think that Pilgrim's Progress, which used to be such a common book for people to read, is neglected in our day. And I try to make it interesting again when I have taught on that subject. I know when people are going through the type of struggles that I went through, I know how to point them to the best books that I've ever found, at least in English, in the history of the Christian church. And I'm looking for these things all the time. So that's the end of my testimony. And I want to thank you for listening. And I by the grace of God, can end this right at exactly one hour. This is Tom Sullivan. His website is called TheNarratedPuritan.com, and I need to take some time to get the titles onto that site. Thank you for tuning in.